The following morning show interview was recorded and initially broadcast back in 2001. It was imperfectly preserved, but I hope that despite its technical shortcomings, you will find it to be a compelling interview. With me on the phone today for the morning show is John Richardson, uh, a journalist and writer, a contributing editor for Esquire uh, magazine. His work has appeared in the Atlantic Monthly, and he is responsible for an absolutely fascinating book called In the Little World, a true story of dwarfs, love, and trouble. Uh, the book is published by Perennial uh, from HarperCollins. And John Richardson joins us on the morning show today to uh, talk about this book and uh, the fascinating and complicated story which inspires it. John Richardson, we welcome you to the morning show. Good morning. Thank you. Uh, you were... Uh, working uh, and writing for Esquire magazine at the time that you paid this visit to uh, a convention of uh, LPA, which is uh, a, a little people's convention. Um, first of all, tell us how that assignment uh, came your way. Well, it was really kind of a last-minute thing. I had been uh, preoccupied with my mom, who was sick for a few months and hadn't done anything, any work for the magazine, and they said they called me up just a couple days before the convention started and said, can you run down to Atlanta and, and spend a week at this little people's convention? And I didn't really think about it very clearly. I just said, sure, because I thought I'd, uh, it would be a fairly contained thing that I could do and get back to take care of my mom. And uh, I, mostly I thought it would be a diversion. I didn't think it would be anything too serious or heavy. So when I got down there and discovered how emotional and, and Well, and little did you know at that moment that uh, your encounter with uh, many of these uh, people would, would go on for years. Indeed. It, it became very absorbing. And, and I think one of the reasons it, it was so absorbing is that I was off, uh, off my um, regular ways of thinking. I'd been unsettled by the whole illness thing that I'd been going through that summer and was sort of open emotionally and, and got hit by this thing pretty hard. Um, what I didn't, like, as I said, I didn't really think that dwarfism was a, an illness or anything. I just thought they were little, but and in fact, it turned out that a lot of them had some severe medical problems, so I sort of encountered what I was running away from in a hmm. way. So you went into this knowing absolutely nothing about dwarfism? Pretty much nothing. I, I, I'd been, I, I'd read Oddly, I'd seen a lot of movies and read books with dwarves in them just because I'd been an English major and and for some reason, uh, as I explore in the book, the writers have always been fascinated by dwarves and, and seem to write about them a fair amount of, uh, in a lot of different fictional contexts. Uh, uh, so that was it. That was pretty much it. As the book opens, you tell the story of being encountered by someone visiting this convention uh, a dwarf who is very much no, not a dwarf actually. It, is it the mother of a dwarf? It's a, it's a mom. That's right, and someone who is very much concerned that you are there. Um, you're clearly a journalist, recording conversations and so on. And I wondered um, to what extent d d were, were you treated that way by by anybody else, or was she a fairly isolated uh, incident of someone uh, who did not make you feel very welcome? 
Well, actually, she turned out to be a great person, and I really I had a, a wonderful conversations with her. But she, she the, you got to watch out for the dwarf moms, or not the dwarves, the moms of dwarves. Uh, they can be very ferocious, and a mom becomes one of the major characters of the book. Uh, and in fact, um, the people who seem to respond to this book the most, uh, most emotionally, are the moms of disabled kids who I've gotten a lot of letters from. And I never really anticipated that. I uh, and I was kind of surprised because the mom in the book is it sort of goes crazy. But I think a lot of um, a lot of moms appreciate that the real difficulties of uh, and darknesses of their lives are exposed for once because usually people don't even want to think about what people are going through who have a dwarf kid but anyway this particular mom confronted me i was uh, as you say i was uh, talking into my tape recorder because i i always make it pretty obvious that i'm a reporter i don't try to be sneaky about it and uh and i was watching her child who was truly unusual um he had a kind of dwarfism that still had not been diagnosed. I'm not even sure if it has at this point. Uh, and he looked, uh, it was so weird. I, he looked exactly like a toddler. Uh, I mean, like a baby, like a, a, a eight or nine month old baby, a bald head and, and very small. Yet he was on a tricycle and operating a tricycle. And, you know, most kids that age can't even keep their heads from bobbing around. So, so I was looking at him and I was, and then I realized what I was seeing. It took a minute because it's hard to process a, a baby on a tricycle. Um, and uh, and I started talking to my tape recorder, and other people were observing the kid, and, and I was observing them observing. And then I noticed the mom who was looking at me with an increasing look of horror. And she came over and grabbed my arm and said, Who are you? What are you doing here? Do you have permission to be here? And it, literally sort of in hysterics, she dragged me down to the office and said, uh, who is this man? Does he have permission? He's he's staring at my child, and um, they said yes. He's a he's been accredited. He's a journalist. He's he, you know he's 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 uh, he's okay. And then she just, then she went a hundred percent in the other direction and started apologizing. And she was mortified and felt really terrible. And for me, I put it at the beginning of the book because uh, it happened early on, and also it was sort of. For me, part of my, I don't want to say hazing process, but it was kind of the, the difficult business in those first few days of getting, uh, my, getting my sea legs or, or whatever in that world because it was so disorienting being a six-foot guy in a hotel of 13, filled with 1,300 dwarves. Yeah. How many uh, people were there uh, of normal height? Well, there's a fair number because the, there's all the dwarves, almost all of them have tall parents. Um, uh, so, and the, and some of them have brothers and sisters who are tall. Uh, and uh, so, there's a fair a fair number. Well, is you, as far as you know, the only journalist there? Uh, I mean, it, I that sort of objective presence. There always seem to be a few local newspapers who come in, but they come in for. They, they, I saw them. They would come in maybe with a camera or with a reporter, and they'd be there for an hour, and they'd leave, and they'd all write the same story. <laughs> hmm. I was the only person who stayed there for, for the whole week, right. for sure. And so far as I know, the, the only person who had ever done that, because I, I searched the clips, and nobody had ever really paid any serious attention to them. Well, you give us some rich detail here. One of the things that you uh, 
you share that was so enlightening to me anyway, and I'm sure to many readers, is that you, you give us a sense of the wide range of dwarfism and, uh, and, and how that also uh, creates almost a, a, a sort of class system within the world of dwarfs. That was one of the big surprises for me. Um, you know, I try, to, the, I try to set the book up so that you go through the trip with me, and I'm, I'm the, 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 the average guy uh, leading you through. So that, as you said, it starts off with this, uh, I think for some people, shocking description of, of what it's like to be in that lobby. Uh, and uh, I, I, I thought about downplaying it or making it more sensitive, but I wanted to take people on the journey that I went through, uh, and, and my, first, my first reaction was sort of, oh my God, look at these, look at these people. Uh, there were so many different kinds, as you say, there were, there were, uh, there were dwarves in suspenders and wire rim glasses, there were hipster dwarves with scarves on their heads, there, was, there, were, there were a lot of really attractive young women, dwarfs, there were grandpa and grandma dwarves in, suspend, in, in, in overall type things, there, and, um, and there, were, there were 200 different kinds of dwarves at least, uh, genetic types, and uh, there are a lot of dwarves who are four foot and over who are achondoplastic dwarves who are in pretty good shape, and then there's dwarves who are three foot and under, some of whom are in wheelchairs, there's a, there's a certain type of dwarfism that almost all of them are in wheelchairs and die quite, quite young before they hit 30. Uh, and so there's, there's sort of a bewildering variety, and uh, pretty quickly I realized that there were also t some tensions between dwarves of different types. Uh, by the end of the convention, the girls who were three foot who were hoping to date guys were really weeping and bitter against the guys who were taller than them, four foot and up, who didn't want to date them or dance with them because they were too short. So I realized that the, it was kind of, uh, as I say, it's like a bewildering world you enter, and uh, you're trying to learn the rules of it. And it's so similar to our own world, but it's but it is different. Mm -hmm. you, you, you say that there, there are some dwarfs that are, uh, in, in effect, miniature versions of what we think of as people of normal stature. But then there are others where the body is not only smaller, but it's, it's truly misshapen mm -hmm. in terms of its proportion, the proportion of the head or the proportion of the limbs and so on. And, uh, and then you paint this picture that's, that, that's really uh, rather bewildering. Uh, not, not bewildering. That's actually, actually, as you read about it, you can really understand how this might come to be. But it's disturbing. Uh, to to uh, to read about how uh, the 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 dwarves that are that are uh, most seriously uh, deformed uh, face a sort of discrimination within the the world of dwarves, or at least perceive it to be. It it is it's disturbing, but in another way, it's kind of reassuring because it's just saying uh, that they're human in a way, because it's the same thing as you uh, that we know from from uh, other minorities. I mean, there's tensions in the black community about people of different skin colors, and, uh, you know, there's always these kinds of tensions. And it was my own naivete, in a way, to expect them all to be the same. One big happy family. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, on the one hand, it's kind of 
sad, but on the other hand, it's like, uh, what, do you, what do you expect? Right. Really? Well, it's, it's no, no sadder than the kind of discrimination that occurs throughout our society. Uh-huh. But, you know, it, I, I, I saw it from a lot of different angles, and, and one angle was, uh, it, I talked to a teenager who was like, look, everywhere else I get made fun of. This is my only chance to make fun of somebody else. Wow. <laughs> Something else you uh, you tell us about you you kind of give us the mathematics of dwarfism the fact that uh, uh, there is one dwarf for every 10 or 15,000 tall people so dwarves are, are, are quite quite rare mm-hmm. and uh, and you say that many of them live their whole lives among tall people rarely if ever seeing another dwarf and so these conventions in which dwarves come from all across the country are uh, a precious, priceless opportunity, not only for them to meet one another, but in many cases, they come anxious and eager for the possibility of, of meeting someone with whom they might fall in love. Well, yeah, I mean, one of the things that, that uh, I, I, the first day when I got there, I went out to the athletic uh, uh, association, the Dwarf Athletic Association games, and I met a bunch of I was struck by, being an Esquire reporter, I was struck by a bunch of sort of alpha male guys who were lifting weights and throwing javelins. Uh, and they were, you know, they were kind of cocky. I liked that. They, 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 they didn't, they weren't like running around feeling bad or anything. They were, they were, they were men being manly. Well, and you said and they had uh, six, six, uh, six pack uh, abs. Oh, yeah. There were a couple of body, uh, weightlifters that were really pumped. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I went up to them and started talking to them, and one of them uh, I hit it off with uh, was named Michael. He was an actor from Hollywood, very good-looking guy, um, and very eager for me to understand what it really was all about. And and he said to me, I hadn't been there for two hours. He said, "This is not a vacation for me. This is this is the most intense week of my year." Uh, and Michael was 33 years old, I think, at the time, and he had a couple of bad relationships, and he wanted to get married. He wanted to have kids. And uh, he'd, <clears throat> he'd come to the realistic conclusion that his chances were much better with a dwarf than with a tall woman. So he was basically there to find a woman, and he, and he had been corresponding with this uh, young woman named Meredith for six months and had fallen in love with her, but he'd never met her before. Uh, and so he was going to meet her that afternoon, and, he, and I said, wow, I'd sure like to be there when you meet her and sort of document that if I can. And this was, it was very touching in his generosity and his eager for me to understand, eagerness for me to understand what he was going through. He said, yeah, and, and so I was there when Meredith walked in, and, and uh, it was pretty amazing because she walked in the door, took a look around the lobby, saw all the doors, and walked right back out. Really? Uh, yeah, and we were just all sitting there going, was that her? <laughs> uh, she came back a few minutes later, and she said she was just she she was one of those who had never seen dwarves before. She she'd grown up uh, dating tall kids and with tall friends in a regular high school, um, and uh, had started to think maybe she also would be happier with dating a dwarf man and and knowing dwarves, uh, sort of searching for a part of herself. Uh, so they went through like this whole drama that week, part of which was trying to adjust to being a dwarf. I mean, you think they're dwarves, they, they must know it, but she didn't really know it until she walked in that convention. Uh, and some of her feelings were not too happy. She was like, do I look like that? And uh, So what 
now I have to be a member of this club. Or do I, I'm not sure I want to be a member of this club. Interesting. I mean, it, that's just the opposite of what we would imagine the experience of, of coming together with other people that are dwarves. You would think that one would, would they that they would have a, a, a much appreciated, long-awaited sense of, of normalcy, finally. Yeah, well, and you're saying do. that in some cases, no, it was just the opposite. Some do, and some don't want to be normal. I mean, Meredith said that uh, she didn't feel special anymore, <laughs> which is, uh, which is uh, interesting. You know, dwarves, to some extent, they are like stars. They, they're always stared at. And they're, they're people who are stared at, whether they're models or movie stars. And I, as a reporter, have spent uh, an inordinate amount of time talking to those kinds of people. Uh, do change from being looked at. Uh, I want to return to a moment for the, the, the point we made earlier, which is that there are many different kinds of dwarves. Mm -hmm. Although, on the other hand, uh, in the midst of that wide range, uh, at several points in the book, you really refer to them in, in, in sort of two categories. Uh, because I think you give us the sense that, that they kind of see themselves in those two categories, and that there are some that you, at one point you call mainstream dwarfs who, uh, uh, in many respects, appear to be normal, uh, but, but just smaller versions of kind of standard height. And then there are others that are really very tiny and more misshapen. Mm -hmm. And you say at one point they seem to be so damn different, unapproachable, like foreign countries with harsh, impossible languages. And you're saying at that point that you'd been at this convention for three days and had yet to talk with any of those kind of dwarves, that you'd found yourself, mm -hmm. probably for a couple of reasons, drawn to the others that looked more like the rest of us. Right. Well, I was checking myself because, uh, you know, I had to... Uh, w one of the things I've learned over the course of doing this book is that dwarfism, like, like you know, I guess race and gender, is it's a social thing. It's not. It's partly a real thing. I mean, it's partly you can't get around the the actual distortions of the body, but but it, but it, it's also a large degree a social interaction. And and uh, and my reaction to people, I, I had to be honest about it. Uh, I mean, if I was going to stare at them, I felt like it was just right to stare at myself a little bit too. So. I was checking myself because it was true. I, I you know, I found it awkward. The the more small they got, the harder it was for me to cross the social the social gulf. And and the biggest, the bigger the relief in a way when they used slang and talked about books we'd read in common. And and it was like, oh, thank God, you know, that I can talk to them. Uh, there were a lot of like feelings that I, were raised that I wasn't really proud of, and I, so I sort of poked around in that a little bit. Hmm. And the fact is, is some of the people who were really, really extremely misshapen, I never did talk to, and, and I still feel like, you know, guilty about it. But the guilt is another issue that, that you have to wrestle with, and I did in the course of the book. You, you certainly did, as you uh, talk about your... Uh, encounter with and uh, up and down relationship with uh, a woman named Andrea. Right. And uh, without divulging too much of the book, uh, Andrea really calls into question uh, at, at several points your, your motives and mm -hmm. your your ability to uh, to grasp the essential truth of, of <laughs> dwarves and their experience and so on. It, it's really quite fascinating. We'll get to the article that you eventually write in a little bit. At one point. You tell a story that I think is so interesting of seeing one of these really tiny dwarves, uh, and and at one point uh, saying, 
ex expressing your 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 sadness for them that they obviously have a really really tough situation and uh andrea sort of takes you to task oh, right, and yeah. says uh, oh you know he's happy isn't he well i guess he looks happy and then she says so don't pity him she mm -hmm. says it doesn't help him yeah i feel like that's one of the most striking lines in the whole book don't yeah. pity him it doesn't help him and i suppose many dwarfs would would in, in in different ways say exactly the same thing yeah no i think it, it was a powerful moment for me too you know one of the things i learned is that your pity really makes you feel better it's it's not a, it's not for them uh and um one of the again checking myself one of the one of the uglier things in our response to dwarves or to anybody who's like uh weird uh or different is a way to you know we we sort of use them to make ourselves feel better in journalism almost every article written about about little people is uh oh they're so brave they've overcome their difficulties uh um and you know i didn't think about it twice i, I you know it's sort of the jerry kid jerry's kids thing you know look how brave they are uh, and what I realized is, uh, in the course of the book, and largely from Andrea badgering me and, and telling me what a bad guy I was, was that uh, the, the, all that bravery and, and overcoming their difficulties, really, that's for us. Uh, I mean, it makes them feel better because it's a momentary relief, but r really the purpose is to make us, take us off the hook. They're not bitter, they're not, you know, they're not, uh, they don't feel like got the shaft, they overcame their difficulties. Uh, and you have to watch that. Uh, Andrea steered me to a book that's a great book. I'd like to plug it called No Pity, um, which is the history of the disability movement. And I, I, I steal from that book a good bit in my in my book. Uh, I didn't even know there was a disability movement until I got involved with this. But but uh, that that fighting against sort of the patronizing. Uh, uh, great white hunter pity for for the people that he's walking amongst is uh, is a powerful thing and and uh, a good thing for me to to look at. We're talking with John Richardson, who is the author of In the Little World, a true story of dwarves, love, and trouble. Uh, the, the, the seminal experience of the book is uh, John Richardson being assigned by Esquire magazine to attend a convention in Atlanta, Georgia, of. Uh, I think it's the LPA, is right. that, which is, is that the Little People of America? It is. Yeah, the Little People of America. And, uh, and then this, uh, uh, an article for Esquire magazine followed, and eventually this fascinating book uh, as well. Um, John, maybe we should talk about your, uh, your thievery, since you just mentioned it, <laughs> the fact that you uh, drew extensively upon this book called, did you say No Pity? Yeah, only for a couple of sure. seconds. No, I I yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I understand. <laughs> um, but uh, you really do give us a, a, a wonderful history lesson uh, talking about how uh, there have been dwarves with us for a long, long time, and that uh, actually even some rather impressive people in history have been, uh, by all accounts, dwarves. Mm -hmm. What do you think is, is important about us knowing that? Uh, well, for me, one, I mean, I guess the most interesting thing uh, is, is sort of the way people use dwarves. I mean, um, uh, I think uh, in, a, in our primitive mind, uh, dwarves are pretty scary, and so they have like a magical quality to them. Uh, 
in the Egyptian god of childbirth was a dwarf. And I think that's important because, you know, every, every parent is afraid that something might go wrong with their kid in childbirth. And, and so how do you deal with the possibility of something terrible happening uh, genetically, you know, in the mysteries of birth? And I think, so people discharge it by making the dwarves sort of magical. And, and uh, as a consequence, um, uh, like Russian emperors used to have dwarf pets, dwarf collections. They, they were always court uh, objects. Um, they were, the Romans used them as uh, sort of a comedy act in the gladiator pens, dwarf gladiators. Uh, they, they, they were often made into comical or magical, um, like, you know, mythical type creatures, elves and all of that. And I think it was a way of dealing with the fear of... Uh, that something you know horrible could happen to us or to our children, um, and so in the course of that, of course, some dwarves distinguished themselves uh, over history. Uh, one was a spy who posed as a baby uh, in in the French Revolution uh, to smuggle things, and and um, but I think the the way that we have used them. Uh, is really sort of more pertinent for the larger world. Uh, and it, it's not a very pretty picture, particularly. Hmm. You uh, have a very powerful encounter, not only with uh, Michael and, and, and Meredith and with Andrea, but also with a mother and daughter. Mm-hmm. And much of this book, in fact, in some respects, the heart and soul of this book is the story of Evelyn and Jocelyn. Mm-hmm. Tell us about them. Well, you know, as I said earlier, that I think it's a social, you know, these kinds of things are social issues, and it's not necessarily just uh, dwarves in isolation. It's dwarves in the tall world. Uh, and uh, Evelyn was a tall mom who had a, had a dwarf child. Um, and she was sort of a stoic Australian woman and pretty much ignored that she was a, her daughter was a dwarf as long as she could. She's like, we're just going to have, we're going to be normal. We're going to live a normal family life. Uh, and I'm not going to treat you any different than my other children, uh, which is a healthy response. Uh, but at one, but at one point, Jocelyn started to get uh, her spine started to hurt her. She started passing out in class. She started using a wheelchair, and she, she became more and more isolated from her classmates. And she began to realize essentially that it couldn't be like she couldn't live a normal life. And Evelyn, I think, because she had approached this in this stoic, we'll just ignore this and and move on, couldn't bring herself to change her gears in Australia. But she saw on the on the internet that about the LPA, and she saw that there were going to be doctors there. So she said, "Okay, we'll go to America, and in America, we'll find the answers to to this medical problem that Jocelyn is having with the wheelchair." So uh, they took a flyer, really. It was this bold, brave thing for this woman who'd never been outside of the bush in Australia. She got raised the money and got on a plane and came to Atlanta. I met them in the lobby of the hotel, and she said, we're going to go meet a doctor this afternoon um, and um, uh, try to um, find out what's wrong with Jocelyn. Uh, and I, as with Michael, I said, well, I'm a nosy reporter. Can I come and come to that <laughs> meeting with you? And she said, sure. Um, and the doctor gave me permission, and I sat in on what was one of the most emotional things I've ever been part of. Uh, she, the doctor 
Dr. Kopitz, this really wonderful man, uh, spent an hour talking to her, like, just why did you come? Did, was it your idea or your mom's idea? Uh, how, tell me about your life. He just really made her comfortable. And then he told her, um, you know, I've looked at your spine, and, and uh, you'll be paralyzed within six months unless you have surgery. And that surgery is going to cost at least a quarter of a million dollars. Uh, at which point, <laughs> uh, everybody started crying. Uh, and uh, then Kopitz looked at me and said, and you're part of this, too. Uh, you have a responsibility now, too. Uh, it was just a very intense scene. Uh, and after that, I really couldn't not be part of it. I just felt I felt like he'd, he'd, he'd put a spell on me. Uh, and also, Evelyn, um, I was the only, I guess I was a, another tall person there that she could talk to, uh, and she was going through this really horrible experience of trying to, trying to face what had gone happened to her daughter. So we became very close over the course of the week. I ended up going to Australia, and uh, a year later, after they'd raised the money, uh, I, went, I went into surgery with Jocelyn and for 12 hours watched her legs be cut open and broken uh, in three places and reset. Hmm. Uh, the, uh, the Part of what makes the, her story particularly interesting, I think, is uh, the story that is told of the, the treatment uh, she received in Australia before coming to America. And I was going to say the poor medical treatment she was given, but on the other hand, I, I think you, you do make it pretty clear that, uh, that the part of what's going on is that uh, we're talking about medical doctors that, that just don't really know exactly what they're doing when it comes to giving treatment to a dwarf. Well, I think, I think that's part of it, but I also think if you read very carefully, <laughs> you'll see that Evelyn's kind of in denial, and she doesn't want to hear it. Um, mm. um, there's a point where the doctor said, where Dr. Kopitz says, so how is Dr. Rogers? And Evelyn doesn't know who he is. And I think she didn't, you know, for some reason it became, she could go to America and get the answer she didn't want to hear in Australia. So, ah, so it, she didn't seek out the expert. Uh, I'm not sure she did seek him out as qu quite, quite as much as she could have. I think, it, you know, it, she had put, she'd put her head in the sand. Uh, and as I say, it was, this is the, 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 fascinating part of it. She wanted, in a healthy way, to say, we're not going to focus on the disease. We're going to focus on her being normal. Um, and in a, it's a metaphor for everything, really, uh, because we all want to say, uh, you know, everybody's the same under the skin, beauty's only skin deep, uh, you know, I'm not a racist, whatever, whatever it is that we want to say, uh, that that again, going back to the no pity thing is is like trying to be compassionate and decent and all of that. Uh, but it's not that simple. I mean, uh, she couldn't. She wasn't normal. She couldn't just say she's normal. She's just like everyone else. She had to face her disability and and to face the crisis. Well, particularly because of those those physical consequences, which cannot be explained away or philosophized away. Exactly. I and mean, one of the things that that I came away from in the book is that. You know, you can't escape the body. You can try, but it will come after you. <laughs> mm. uh, and at some point, you know, denial does not work for everybody uh, very well, and you just have to face it. Uh, and uh, it was interesting. Jocelyn uh, was a, a very quiet girl and, and very stoic. Uh, she'd been through a lot of pain in her life. And when we were in the hospital, I asked her, what do you stare at when you stare at the ceiling? And she says, I'm just focusing. Uh, 
pain on an aspirin. I, I it was, I mean, I literally saw her leg broken in three places and reset. And two days later, she was just taking Tylenol. Hmm. Uh, and so there's this this focus that we get uh, when we're dealing with terrible things, and and that focus is necessary. It was the same focus her mom had, but it's also terrible in a way because because you block out a lot of things and. Uh, you know, Evelyn blocked out her husband and her family and her country and ended up causing a lot of damage. Uh, she got divorced. Uh, you know, the the disability of her child echoed across her life and uh, caused tr- huge traumas. Hmm. You know, a small little telling detail that I wanted to mention about uh, your relationship with, with Evelyn and Jocelyn is that when when they return to Australia and then you are communicating with them via email, mm-hmm. uh, you talk about at one point how Evelyn, once they returned to Australia, grew so uh, frustrated and resentful of what she saw as kind of inane questions people would ask about America and did you go to the Hard Rock Cafe and mm-hmm. what was this like and what was that like? And people just did not seem at all aware or even very interested in the powerful kind of life-changing experience that this was for mm-hmm. she and her daughter to uh, attend uh, this kind of a, a enormous gathering with, with, with other dwarves. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's like, the, and, and, and it's, it seems to me kind of a metaphor for how many of us would probably be unable to an extent to understand this life and, and this kind of experience. Greg, you are the smartest of all interviewers. Uh, <laughs> no, seriously, you're really getting to the heart of this because, you know, on the one hand, how insensitive? How could they not want to talk about what was really going on with this really horrible trauma that their friend and, and, and spouse had gone through? Uh, but, and that's how Evelyn looked at it. But on the other hand, it's like they were doing exactly what she did for 12 years. They were trying light to make life normal. Uh, and and she had gone through the looking glass. She did, she knew life wasn't normal, and and she was um, angry with them uh, for not having the same kind of intensity of experience that she had had. But they hadn't had it. So I mean, to my mind, it's totally understandable and completely unfair what she was what she was uh, feeling, because for instance, her husband, who I came to have a fair amount of sympathy for, he was like, let's just. Get back to life, Evelyn. Let's, you know, she she was talking about America and America being this wonderful place where everyone understood. Um, and I I thought from the beginning that she was dis- uh, uh, living in a dream world when it came to America. I mean, as her husband told her, when you're sick, when you have a sick child, everybody's going to be nice to you. There's going to be an intensity of experience that that is in a way really pleasing, but. That's not the real America. America's a big country. <laughs> Everybody's not a saint who's like helping you get on the airplane. And it's not going to be like that always. And she just refused to hear that. Um, and you know, I couldn't judge her for that because she had a child who was going to face paralysis unless she came up with two hundred fifty thousand dollars. So you can't judge. But boy, it was. I was watching a, a, the train go off the tracks. It, mm. uh, it was. For somebody I cared about, it was a horrible thing to watch, especially at a distance. Sure. Well, and of course, that's one of the most compelling stories in the pages of this book is that struggle for this family to try to make possible this surgery, which can uh, 
which can save this young woman from uh, a life of uh, quadriplegia. Save the child and kill the family, though. Right. You know, it was it was awful. Right, right. Uh, you eventually write an article for Esquire magazine, and it touches off a, a, a bit of a firestorm uh, amongst some of these dwarves with whom you had become very close and uh, who figured prominently uh, in the story. Uh, in a nutshell, what is it that you wrote that so incensed them? Well, there are a few things, but uh, I think probably the worst thing was just my physical descriptions of them. Uh, and, you know, I'd read the No Pity book by that point, and I thought, I'm going to treat them just like everybody else, like a, like a movie star or a politician or anybody else I would write about. And I tried to make it as vivid as I can and as I could, and that's the, that's the first page of the book um, now. Um, which I think cost me a few reviews because people read the, read the first page and went, "Whoa, this guy is a really jerk, really a jerk." But what I did was I just I just just described. Uh, you know, they had. I mean, if you look at aconoplastic dwarves, they have big foreheads, they have big butts, they have sh- short arms, they they have pushed in uh, brows. I mean, their noses are sort of pushed in, and their their foreheads sort of bulge out. Uh, and I described it, you know, using a few metaphors and trying to make it vivid. And um, and uh, I mean, one person wrote in the on the dwarfism uh, internet chat room that uh, God may forgive John Richardson, but I never will. Uh, it was it was uh, it was pretty upsetting because I, I mean, you know, you're a reporter, you write and say things, and people are always getting mad at you. But but I, I really didn't want these people to get mad at me, and I was. I was sort of shocked by it and felt awful and and uh, didn't know what to do with it in a way. Hmm. I, I'm curious, too, uh, as you wrote the article and submitted it to Esquire, um, was it greeted with any misgivings by uh, whoever might have had the responsibility of, no. of editing it? No, I, I, and I asked specifically, do you guys think that this is too harsh or too vivid or too, you know, too, too, too? And everybody said, no, 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 because the piece is really sensitive and it's, it really shows them as ripple human beings and nobody would be, you know, nobody would focus on these things and get upset about it. <laughs> I was like, uh, oh, yeah. But also, uh, some of the things that they got mad at about, I got mad at them for. Uh, Michael, uh, who was so generous with his time and with his insight um, during the week that I was there, uh, they attacked him viciously uh, for "quote unquote" taking center stage. Uh, we should I, say I, that Michael is uh, you. You would characterize him as a as a very uh, handsome dwarf. He's uh, uh, an athlete and an actor. I and, did, and uh, so I called him. I fatally called him perhaps the best looking dwarf in the LPA, and that made people crazy. Uh, but you know, because he's handsome and because he's um, he's uh, prominent in the organization. He, a lot of people disliked him. Uh, and when I wrote an article about him, some of them, uh, you know, some of them, like when I said I thought he was the best-looking dwarf in the LPA, they said he said that, and that he had just fed me the words, and that he was an egomaniac and all that. So Michael went berserk after the piece came out because because suddenly you know they were taking it out on him. Um, and, uh, and I was quite upset about that because it wasn't his fault. Uh, Something else you mentioned, too, is that I think in the article 
you do not come out and say that Michael is a what is he a part-time stockbroker? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and that that was interesting to me that 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 would be so important to him and that uh, omission to him was was apparently quite insulting. Well, again, this was my fault. I mean, he had told me that he thought that was important, and I didn't take him seriously. I didn't realize how politically the dwarves take acting. I mean, he, again, he told me, but I just I thought he was being a little you know, overly, unreasonably nervous. Uh, and and uh, I really couldn't, you know, I, I really had nothing to say except for that I didn't think that he was right and I was wrong. Uh, I turned out to be wrong. <laughs> uh, grievously wrong, because he never quite forgave me for that. Right. Uh, but, you know, the, in, in the dwarf world, being an actor uh, is, is a very problematic thing because of the whole sideshow and circus thing. Uh, so again, taking center stage was a was a heavily loaded term that they used against him, and and I, I was I was really saddened by the whole thing because I, again I thought he really went out of his way to try to explain the world the world of little people to me, and then for them to take it out on him like that I, I was disappointed in a lot of them. I think that is also interesting along this line is uh, a conversation you have with Andrea. She is the, the person which, with whom you, in some ways, have the, the most turbulent uh, relationship, and she's uh, deeply uh, upset by the, by the article. But, but even before the article's written, you have an encounter with her in which she's telling you something about um, her family. She makes sure your tape recorder's off, and then she confides in some difficulties. I don't remember now if it was with her siblings or her father or wh mm -hmm. what it was, but, mm -hmm. but, and you said at one point, I, I have to write about this because what she is saying is so compelling, is just a, a, a fascinating human story. And she says, don't, I mean, it has nothing to do with dwarfism. And you say, but that's why I want to write about it, mm -hmm. to, to sort of fill out the, the, the picture. And I don't, I think she's adamant and never does allow you to really uh, use any of that uh, in the article. I thought that was really interesting and, and reminded me that, that you faced a very interesting challenge uh, as a journalist covering all of this that in a sense the, the heart and soul of your assignment was to cover the experience of these dwarves and yet you would find yourself drawn to these other human stories that had nothing specifically to do with dwarfism at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well it's, 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 a, it's a paradox, isn't it? Because on the one hand, t they were telling me, you know, we're people just like everyone else. And then when I got off the subject of dwarfism, uh, it was like I was wandering outside of the little ghetto that I'd been, you know, that I was just told I shouldn't be in. <laughs> uh, but I think that, to some extent that was very specific to Andrea. She, she, um, uh, she like a lot of people uh, in general, but a lot of little people especially, she wanted to be known and she didn't want to be known. Hmm. Uh, you know, I think the little people have a real need to be seen, but they're also afraid of what people will see right. uh, and how people will see them. So uh, the approach avoidant thing is, is very intense. And, and you know, she... She wanted both of both Andrea and I. I think felt a relief when we were talking about our fathers. We there was a we both had a similar father issues, and and it was like, oh, okay, we're you know we can talk about this. This is something real that we can talk about. That's not about you know how do you feel about height. Uh, uh, it was something that brought you together. 
Yeah, but it was also, I think, a little threatening because then you're really coming together. Then it's not a superficial exchange. And then what mm-hmm. are the what, how's that how's that going to work out? You know. Yeah. And so, I think exposure is very frightening. And you know, you asked about my the article that I wrote, and there was quite a bit of resistance to my including the, the fact that I had written an article and that people were mad at me for it and all of that, um, because you don't ex- usually journalists don't expose that people get mad at them or that they were said something offensive or even, t- you know, talk about themselves is not considered all that kosher. But I felt like if I was, the book ultimately, it became about exposure to me. And it was like I was I was poking into their secrets and, and uh, it, it was only fair for me to reveal a few of my own. Right, right. I uh, wanted to mention one other thing about Andrea, and, and actually this specific conversation, which she ends up uh, forbidding you from using in the in, in, in the article, but it does appear in the book. Uh, the, the, the 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 thing she's talking about with her father, I think, involves the fact that he wants her to become a scientist. Mm-hmm. And at one point, she says, um, "My grandmother once said to me, I've got a good idea for you. You could stay home and be a typist, and that way, nobody would see you." Yeah. And, uh, you know, in that small little line is wrapped up so much of what you were just saying about wanting to be seen and yet being afraid to be seen or, mm-hmm. or wondering what the consequences are going to be of, mm-hmm. of being seen. But exactly. also the, the sense of, of this grandmother who probably loved Andrea very, very much, but saying something like that that had to be so hurtful. Yeah, yeah. And and pro- and uh, as you say, loving her and not even realizing exactly how hurtful it was. Uh, later in the book, once the article has come out and uh, and uh, and a, a rain of bombs is coming down on your head from uh, these uh, um, un- unhappy subjects uh, in the article, one of the things Andrea does in a conversation with you that I think is is maybe the single most fascinating moment in the whole book is when she is taking issue with what you are saying in terms of the soul being more important than the body and looking past. And she says at one point that um, uh, accepting difference does not mean overlooking bodies. It means getting to the point where, where the difference doesn't seem wrong. So first she was saying that you were saying that, 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 that these bodies are, are somehow wrong bodies, but you should just look beyond the bodies and you would see a soul that's just a, a normal soul like, like you and me. First of all, do you feel like you were, in fact, saying that, or did she misread the article? And then beyond that, to what extent do you agree with the point that she's making? Oh, boy, you're asking me to know what I'm talking about. That's that. I'm just a journalist. <laughs> that's all too much for me. Oh, boy. You know, I think... She, she got fixated on this one line and wrote a letter denouncing me to my editors and everything. Oh, I remember you saying that. that yeah, it appears in the letter to the editor, and you hadn't heard from her. And then I know. that was your clue as far as what she thought of the article. I, I, I thought she was really blindsiding me, and I thought it was kind of an unfriendly thing to do, but whatever. Uh, but what she wrote was there was a line at the end of the, at the, end of the story where I said that... Um, uh, there's no getting around the fact that they look wrong. They do look wrong, uh, but but you know then you talk to one of them and you realize that they're human and and I, and you know and I and that there's a sort of giddiness that occurs at that moment where you feel like 
we've all, you know, the, the physical realities, the physical limitations don't bind us. They don't define us. There's sort of a, a little moment, a little leap of liberation when, when the voice comes out of their mouth. Uh, and I was sort of like pleased with that. And boy, she just never let me forget. She never forgave me for that. Because first off, she said, you know, we don't look wrong. And then we would have these long arguments, and I would say, look, I'm not saying you look wrong like bad, necessarily. Uh, I'm just saying that, you know, compared to the norm, you don't look like the norm. Norm is normal, and non-normal is wrong. And, she, you know, I mean, I'm just using it like that. I don't, and, you know, we've argued about that for six months or so. <laughs> uh, and then and then she, and then I said, look, as you say, I said, look, if I'm, if I was a saint, if I was a good person, as opposed to the jerk that I am, I would I would look past the body. And, and then she 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 said, "You don't have to look past." I don't know. I really, I, you know, I to some extent I felt like she wanted me to say something that I didn't feel, and I I I, I could say the words, but I couldn't feel the feelings. I mean, uh, I guess you know, I don't know. It's tough. It like. I imagine to an earlier generation, if you looked at black skin, if you were a white guy living in a plantation, you looked at black skin, it would look wrong. Now, it certainly doesn't look wrong to me. I mean, uh, skin color doesn't, like, affect me particularly. I grew up overseas. It doesn't look wrong. It looks, you know, it doesn't. But the physical deformities do look wrong. Uh, And... You know, maybe part of it is a f- exposure thing, but I'm not sure that's true. And I and I could never really say to her, you know, th- what she wanted to hear. I mean, I think that, as 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 you know, the book talks about quite a bit about why we have uh, uh, a feeling of shrinking away from something that's different. And I and I sort of do conclude that it's it's related to our fear of death and our fear of child problems in childbirth and all of that, and that. When you have a deformity, it's a sign of it's sickness. It really is, uh, and um, it reminds you of your mortality and your frailty and all that. And it's a disturbing, and so wrong is the word that leaps to mind. Right. And you know, it's a harsh thing to say to somebody who's who's got a defect. But you know, the on the LPA, they don't use the word physical defect. They use physical difference. And I, I think hmm. that's just dishonest, ultimately. Interesting. Well, it, it really comes down to honesty, doesn't it, in the sense that you are trying to be as honest as possible in conveying your feelings and, and perceptions and so on. And uh, and that honesty took some courage because you were saying certain things that uh, would not be necessarily easy, easy for anybody to read. But uh, yeah. um, but clearly you, you, you wrote those words uh, not realizing how they were going to be read by uh, by the, by the dwarves that you that you met. Yeah, you know, I was sort of proud of them. I thought, okay, hey, it's a little enlightenment. It's a little Buddhist moment where I, you know, <laughs> I get past the 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 outside and into the to the inner truth. But but you know, Andrea never wanted to me never wanted to be a vehicle for my enlightenment. And uh, <laughs> you know, the idea that uh, I see a dwarf and I have these feelings and then I resolve these feelings and all that just annoyed her and justifiably so <laughs> you, know, you know there's the part where she says get somebody else to raise your consciousness hmm. i mean i you know i tried to put all that stuff in there so that she could have her say because you know i'm not the smartest guy in the world and i think she's actually probably 
you know, writer than I am on this subject. But mm. like you say, I was just trying to uh, be honest about where I was at the moment. We're talking with John Richardson, the author of In the Little World, A True Story of Dwarves, Love, and Trouble. Just a couple other questions. You've been very generous with your time. I wanted to ask you about something that I th was, was a real eye-opener for me. I had not stopped to think about it, the fact that in this age of computers and the Internet and the email, this has been of enormous consequence for, uh, for dwarves who, who are able to come together in this way. Gosh, yes. I mean, I, I think Jocelyn, for example, would be paralyzed in a wheelchair for the rest of her life if it wasn't for the Internet, because her mom, something about the anonymity of it, let her log on and search achondoplasia. Um, and certainly for young dwarves trying to uh, go into chat rooms and flirt with other young dwarves, it's been, uh, I, I when I went to the LPA convention, it was sort of, early in the internet thing in the late 90s and uh, and they were just discovering it it was a huge liberating thing for them but there is one story in the book that uh, about a dwarf who pretends to be different than she is pretends to be prettier and uh, skinnier and has this whole fraudulent romance with uh, with somebody with Michael actually on the internet uh, and uh, he doesn't realize that she's actually a friend of his so uh, you know, it's a, <laughs> it's, a, it's a liberation, but it can be a little bit uh, too liberating. Well, and you eventually meet uh, a dwarf named Martha. I don't think that's who you're talking about. No. Martha is somebody else, uh, a, a dwarf who is in an AOL chat room and who uh, basically rips Michael to shreds. Mm -hmm. as someone that, uh, one of these dwarfs who is good-looking and who does not seem to have the t uh, give the time of day to uh, to more severely deformed dwarfs uh, l like her, for instance, mm -hmm. and uh, and she you, you quote at one point as saying the new age of computers has given me a new voice, mm -hmm. and of course that that's just a, a wonderful little moment because it of course has meant that for for lots of people not to, not just dwarfs but this is a, a a superb example of of what a difference. Uh, these these kind of forums of discussion via the internet, the, the the enormous difference they've made in the lives of so many different people who, for whatever reason, might before have felt completely disenfranchised. Yeah, no, I mean, especially I think you know it's so great for people who are members of any kind of small minority to, to meet other people of their kind. Uh, the internet, though, <clears throat> boy, you should see the flame wars on the little people uh, websites. They they they're. I've heard other people say that they're more like vicious on those <laughs> on those uh, websites than uh, other people. Uh, hmm. But uh, I don't really have that wide of an experience. But boy, they can really get uh, down on each other. Um, there's a lot of there was one big flame war over a guy who was uh, working in a Mexican restaurant serving chips out of his hat, uh, and. The, a lot of the dwarves just really were offended by that. Interesting. <laughs> by and large, in this, the, the dwarves that you came to know, I, I guess I'm looking past these very important people that really figure prominently from start to finish in your book, but I'm, I'm, I'm thinking more generally back to all the dwarves that you met at this convention in Atlanta. By and large, can you make any generalizations in terms of 
how well adjusted they seem to be or, or in coming to grips with this reality in their lives and so on, or do they really run a, a, a huge gamut of, of, of experience from the very troubled to the perfectly adjusted? Uh, they do run the gamut. I, I think that, um, I don't know if anybody in this world is perfectly adjusted, but I think that what I would say is that because they deal with the problem of difference and beauty uh, early and hard and in an inescapable way, um, I think that it's much clearer for them. I mean, I think some of them, the ones who are bitter, are are uh, you know conscious and bitter, and the ones who have dealt with it and sort of transcended it are seem even more. Uh, together than than your average person uh but i you know i I have no scientific basis for saying that i just some people seemed really at peace with themselves and reconciled to themselves in the way that a whole some a lot of us aren't Mm um uh and and a lot of people seem to be consumed by a kind of uh darkness um you know it's interesting the in journalism, it's all happy talk when it comes to little people. In lit- in literature, it's all darkness. There's very <laughs> there's very little happy talk. They're always like uh, planning to steal your babies or, or, or you know killing people or, or doing something horrible in, uh, from in myth or, or novels. Uh, so uh, it's, I th- I came to see that as representing the poles. One pole is the perfectly well-adjusted survivor who's got so much strength and courage, and the other pole is this this dark uh, creature that's received the ultimate injustice. Hmm. What kind of questions did you ask them? Oh, golly, you know, I'm not much on questions. I just sort of like have conversations. Um, uh, But I would ask I mean, I would ask pretty direct questions uh, about how they dealt with it and what their relationships were like and all of that. I mean, uh, and then it all became quite specific to the individual. Right. What is your contact now with the principal players in this book, with uh, Andrea, with um, uh, Michael, with Meredith, with Evelyn and Jocelyn? Well, Andrea, I'm sorry to say, I talked to her about a month before the book came out, and then I haven't heard from her since. Um, And, uh, you know, I'm not going to hassle her. I'd like to hear from her, but uh, I'm going to leave that where it is. I've talked to Evelyn was kind of mad at me when the book came out because it's it shows some dark things in her life and her marriage falling apart and all that but about after a while uh after a few months we started communicating and she she um uh she's you know we're pals again uh Jocelyn is doing great and I'm really really uh, she's the young woman with the surgery yeah, she she came through the surgery. She's in great shape. She's she's driving a car and she's full of beans. It was interesting to see her change because she went from like this silent girl to being really lively and spirited. Uh, so I, I discovered that it really was a lot. It was really she was just focusing. She was she was too busy staring at the ceiling to to have <laughs> to talk to anybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she's she's really thrived and is doing great. And Michael and Meredith are doing quite well too. Uh, uh, we had a few uh, 
think I ended up, Meredith got really angry at me, and I ended up hanging up on her. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and Michael was, like, uh, pretty cool about it and uh, seemed to like the book and forgave me for my sins. Interesting. It really is, uh, th this book is fascinating on all kinds of levels, and one of them is, is, like you say, it's not often the journalists take us so honestly into the heart of, of their experience. By the time an article appears on the pages of a magazine or a book appears on the shelf, so often it has kind of a well-scrubbed, <laughs> immaculate look about it. And uh, you really, uh, for whatever reason, uh, were not adverse to showing us kind of the rough edges of the experience of when a journalist steps into the lives of, of, of people, complicated people, and and encounters them and tries to write about them and and uh, all of this happens well as i said you know i think it's it, 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 you know a lot of times if the journalist writes about his experience it, it feels kind of self-indulgent and it's like oh me 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 but in this case i really felt that and uh, you know a lot of times in my regular journalism i don't talk about i leave the eye out of it but this time i felt like i really owed it to them and that it was essential to the story um uh, and th there was no other way to get some of those letters in there. <laughs> there were, some of the letters about my article just broke my heart. There was this, uh, this one woman who wrote in and said, you know, I see the picture, the women in your magazine, and I would like to be a model like them too, but I can't because I'm, you know, I'm only three feet tall and my, I have the head the size of a bird. You know, it's the kind of thing just kills you. And, and some people were so nice and so forgiving and, and you know, uh, thank uh, I, I wanted to get that exchange, their their desire to be understood, their anger. I, I felt it all deserved a chance to be to be said. And ultimately, you know, at the end of the book, I point out that there there were cheerful, better adjusted dwarves that, that I didn't write about. Uh, I, I felt like part of the story is the story of why I found the story compelling. And I think people who are fascinated with difference. Uh, usually have something in themselves that is different or that they fear is different that they want, that they're processing through their fascination. Right. Uh, and, and I had to sort of cop to that and look at it, and that's part of the experience. I mean, it's the same with minorities and genders and everything else. I think most people just, you know, the well-adjusted people don't think about it until it comes into their face. Other sure. people have a fascination and and there's a reason for it. How do you follow this? I mean, I, it, 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 I mean it's such a kind of a landscape-altering experience. Um, <laughs> doesn't uh, other things you've written about in Esquire sort of feel mundane by comparison? Or do you welcome that, maybe? Well, uh, I, I mean, you're always eager for something that's incredibly rich and human. Um, uh, the, the, it's true that it's. I mean, the, this kind of story doesn't come along that that often, and that's why I thought it would be a good a good book. Um, uh, but you know, I think uh, if you pick up Esquire once in a while and see my stories, you'll see I'm not falling down on the job. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Well, you've certainly written a, a superb book uh, and compelling book in the little world, a true story of dwarves, love, and trouble, uh, and, and it is. Uh, published by Perennial. John Richardson, my, uh, my thanks for uh, being so generous with your time and for uh, joining us today for a very thought-provoking morning show. I thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a terrific interview.